So we've been uh, moving through this study called King of Kings, and I'll explain a little bit of that uh, in a moment if you haven't been with us, but I wanted to start by asking this morning, anybody in this room ever made a, a poor decision before? Am I the only one in here that's not a liar? Okay, there we go. Okay, I see some, some poor decisions. Some, maybe you chose poorly, and you found yourself at the end of the day in a situation like one of these guys. We're like, how did I get here? right? What series of events in my life got me to this point? And maybe, you know, you think about tattoos. One of the freakiest things to me about tattoos is their permanence. And so you really want to be careful that you understand double negatives uh, when you go to go put something on your body uh, forever and ever. Amen. I have made a decision, I've made a mistake or two in my life. Uh, when I was in junior high, the age of many poor decisions including the part down the middle look there, um, I, I found myself one afternoon without parental supervision. It was my, mom, uh, my, my two buddies and my younger brother. We were at the house. Now, my little brother was doing typical little brother stuff, bugging us, you know, wanting to hang out with us, trying to be cool. You know how little brothers can be. So my buddies, in their infinite wisdom, they're like, dude, we should teach your little brother a lesson. We should rough him up a little bit. Let's give him a wedgie. Now, I'm in junior high. But I'm not a complete idiot. I know my parents' rules. If there's a problem, like Jeremy being a pain, that you wait for them to come home and, and they'll kind of sort it out, right? Like that's how parents... So th that principle was clear in my mind. But I'm faced with a decision. I can listen to the words of these two tempters or I can choose the truth of my parents and let them be the judge when they get home. Now, which one do you think that I chose? <laughs> now, we got Jeremy good. We got him really good. And I think we got the underwear up and over the temples, which was pretty impressive, really. Uh, but when, when my mom got home, she got me good, <laughs> right? I remember uh, comedian Mark Lowry, he jokes, he says, some people will say, never spank your children. It will squelch their personality. He said, I'm here to tell you Mama squelched my personality all over the house. And that afternoon, Mama squelched my personality all over that house. Now, we're going to see this morning two similar situations that David is going to be faced with. A choice that he comes to a crossroads to make. And, and he has a choice. He can listen to some tempting words to take matters into his own hands or trust God and his timing and his control and his heart for David, we've been walking through this series that we're calling King of Kings. We're seeing God's work through these first three kings in Israel's history. We started in 1 Samuel chapter 8 where Israel demands a king. They said, we want to be just like all the other nations. And instead of trusting God as their true king, they said, we want a, a human king that we can see and touch just like all the other nations. So God gives them this king, Saul who's the tall, dark, handsome one that they, in their hearts, would have wanted. But what we see is Saul, he's less impressive on the inside than he was on the outside, and he refuses to trust and obey God until he actually gets his crown removed because of it, and God gives it to the next man, who we see coming onto the scene, the giant slayer, King David. He's going to slay Goliath, and that drives Saul mad with jealousy, and he actually gets to the point where he tries to actively kill David. 
Now, last, last time, two weeks ago, we were preaching through this, we saw David's incredible friendship with Jonathan and what that meant to him. But because of Saul's insistence on killing him, David is actually driven away from the kingdom. And even though he's God's choice for the next king, he finds himself for the next six years on the run in the wilderness. And that's where we're going to pick up our story today, where David is being chased by Saul. And what's incredible to see is David's response to the very one who is trying to take his life. And we're going to see in this lessons of forgiveness, and how to rest in the sovereignty of our all-powerful God. And we apply this to ourselves. Will we, will we try to take matters into our own hands, or will we trust him in the midst of our wilderness experiences? Now, we know our continual perpetual notion to fail in trusting our God. That's ultimately why we needed Jesus, right? But let's look at this. What we're going to see is David sparing the life of Saul. And we're going to actually see it happen two times in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and then again in chapter 26. And you'll see there are a lot of parallels between these two passages. So let's look first at, at 1 Samuel 24. The words will be on the screen. Welcome to follow along in your version. Uh, we're going to first hear some tempting words, some, some lying words. 1 Samuel 24. We'll start in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now I want you to note God's providence here. God places Saul in the very cave that David's hiding out in. This is no coincidence, right? Now why is it that he says he's in there? He says he's there to relieve himself. Now, what we find here is that kings need to go potty too, right? And so he takes this little break. And and actually, the the Hebrew word there is to cover his feet. So in the day, Saul would have had this long robe. And then when he got, I mean, you can probably, you know, paint the picture in your own head. Um, And what he's actually doing is he's following, following some laws, some sanitation laws that were very specific for an army when they were on the move. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, it talks to this. So Saul never obeys except when it comes to bathroom rules. So way to major on the major, Saul. But um, he, he's going to follow, and Warren Wearsby says, this is what happened. Each soldier was required to leave the camp to relieve himself. He had to carry a small little shovel or a trowel among his weapons so that he could dig a hole and cover his excrement. This meant that Saul was away from the camp and therefore quite vulnerable. He naturally wanted privacy and felt that he was not in danger. Boy, did he have that wrong. The fact that he walked right into David's hiding place not only proved that his spies were incompetent, they were the ones that were supposed to go out before see where David was, but also that the Lord was still in control. Through this potty break, God puts Saul right into David's hands, and that's not lost on his men. Look at verse 4. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And notice the words they use. The Lord said to you. Now, is that true? Did God say this? We don't have a record of him saying that here. He, he may have, and it wasn't recorded, but what we see that does not sound like the God that I know is this phrase. He says that you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. You've got a choice here, David. 
and there's something that for you seems like it would be really, really good to wipe Saul out in this moment. Now he's faced with this choice, and he hears the words of somebody telling him to do something contrary to the word of God. Where did we hear that before? You rewind the clock all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and is that not where Adam and Eve are sitting? With a choice. A choice to do something that seems good to them in the moment, or to choose to trust God's wisdom and God's way. Now we know what Adam and Eve did, and look at verse uh, 6 of Genesis 3. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, as it seemed good to her, she made the wrong choice and sin enters into the world. What will David choose? Which way will he go? And again, I want to remind you, this is Saul, the man who has been actively trying to kill David for years. This is David's chance to get very real, to get this very real threat, this very life-menacing threat out of his hair. I mean, David needs a nap, right? He's been on the run for years, just trying to find a little peace in his life. And here God has served him up on a porcelain platter. God has obviously placed Saul at David's mercy, but the question that Warren Wearsby asks is how does the Lord want to use this occasion? How would he have David respond? Is this time for personal revenge, or is it time to show mercy to Saul and prove that David's heart is right before his God? Now, which one does David choose? He rejects the lies of the tempter whispering into his ears, and instead he chooses the word of God and his truth. Look at what happens. David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So a ninja style comes over and gets a little piece of the robe. Saul didn't even notice, which for the record, Saul must have really been focused. <laughs> like, are you? But if I'm, if I'm going to the bathroom, I'm probably noticing if somebody's removing pieces of my clothing. Like, I'm probably going to be in tune with that, right? But I don't know. You know, anyway, we, we won't go any farther with that. He cuts off a corner of his robe. Now, what does that remind you of? This should immediately take us back to 1 Samuel 15, where there's another robe being cut. I actually found there's on Christian Pinterest. Here's a little uh, activity for your Sunday school, right? God bless the internet. You can do this fruit roll-up style and remove part of the roll. And so here in 1 Samuel 15, it says, As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. This is when Saul obeyed, disobeyed God for the second time. And Samuel's told him, your kingdom's done. He grabs onto Samuel's robe. He says, no, and the robe is torn. And here's the significance. Uh, verse 28, And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you are. Who is that man? That's a reference to David. And here we see in this cave... This, this is just dripping with metaphor. This, this robe, which symbolizes his reign, he says, it's being taken from you, and here's the very one who will take the throne from him that's removing a piece of his robe. But even this little act convicted David. Look at verse 5. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had to cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is, again, the Lord's anointed. Not only did he refuse to kill Saul, he feels bad about cutting off a little piece of his robe. Now look at David's, the response of David's men, verse 7. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went his way. Now this is astounding. David's men, who are understandably ready to take out their leader's nemesis, are held back by who? David himself. David actually becomes Saul's savior here. Imagine this for a moment, that you're saving the very one who's been trying to kill you 
sort of pictures the one that will come from David's line, doesn't it? What we see over and over again in our story, we've said it before, Saul is a taking king and David is a giving king. Saul is trying to take David's life, where here David gives Saul his life when he could have clearly taken it from him, stops his own men. And not only that, but look at verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. David bows and calls him, my lord, the king. And this is an important lesson for us today to be reminded of what Warden Wearsby says, even if you can't respect the man or woman in office, that can ring true in modern politics, right? You must show respect to the office. In Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, talk about that. Our call to respect the king, which is ultimately a sign of our trust in God, which is what David's showing here. In fact, Exodus 22, there's this explicit law that you wouldn't even curse a king's name. So he pays honor to his name and to his position on the throne, let alone desiring to take his, or, will, or being uh, there to take his life. Now David says these words to Saul to follow. He says to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? There are all these people saying, Saul's, uh, David's out to get you. He says, no, I'm not. And you need proof? Verse 10, behold this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and someone told me to kill you. I heard the lies. I heard the words of the tempter, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Man, David says, this is proof, right? This is proof that I didn't want to kill you. Now, three times in this passage, he says, the Lord's anointed. He says, God anointed you. God chose you for this role. So it is not my place. It's not my role to take you out of your role, on my timetable. And he says in verse 11, See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and didn't kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. He says, here's the proof. I'm holding your robe. I could have killed you, and I didn't. Verse 12, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David's concern here is to show that he's obeying his true king, that he's living rightly, that he is innocent in this matter to clear his name. So David chooses truth here in the cave. And then we're going to hear some words from Saul, empty words of lies. Look at verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking uh, these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Remember, he he actually is his son-in-law at this point. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. There is real emotion here with Saul, real sorrow. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me with good, whereas I have repaid you evil. That's that's true. Verse 18, you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hand. So he's seeing clearly what could have happened here. Verse 19, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? May the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me today. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. He's acknowledging here, you are the rightful heir to the throne. It's yours that God's given to you, taking it from me. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. So Saul here, man, you're hearing some, I mean, this seems like the right words, right? And you see some emotion here. You see the, the acknowledgement of it's, uh, I've done wrong, you've done right, this is your kingdom. And I think in the moment, we have no reason to believe necess- in, in the moment that he wasn't being genuine. Remember, Saul's not all bad. But, but here's the problem. 
Now, we've, we've seen this weeping before, right? We, we've seen this kind of emotion from him before. We've seen temporary emotional reactions. Sorry that he got caught. Sorry that things aren't going his way. But what we haven't seen from Saul yet is a heart change. What we haven't seen from Saul yet is repentance. And so David accepts his words. He says he swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. He says, I'm hearing you, Saul, but I'm going to go my way and you can go yours. I could trust you about as far as I could throw you. And what we see here from Saul, we listen to his words. You see this, this pronoun showing that Saul is still very self-focused. You will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name of my father's house. This isn't ultimately for Saul about God's glory and God's will. This is about preserving his line. What we're seeing from, from Saul is an important distinction that, that Paul makes in the New Testament about sorrow. He says there is a kind of sorrow that's of the world, and there's a so- kind of sorrow that's of God. And he talks about what the difference of them look like in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So what does real sorrow look like? He unpacks it for the Corinthian church where he is seeing true godly sorrow. And see what this godly sorrow produced in you. An earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation against what is wrong, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, such a readiness to punish wrong. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. You see this course correction amongst the Corinthians showing their sorrow produced what true repentance will always produce, change. And how do we know? How do we know that there's not a change of heart here with Saul? Well, I think that's one of the reasons that that God gives us chapter 26. Because what we're going to find two chapters later is Saul is back at it again, chasing down David, trying to kill him. Look at verse 20, chapter 26, verse 7. David and Abishai went to the army by night. This time they sneak into Saul's camp. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. So this time David sneaks into Saul's camp. And look at what Abishai says. He said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Sounds similar to the first story, right? Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. That's a cool line. That's something like Braveheart, right? I will not miss. I need to thrust my spear but once. Let me make a little Saul kebab out of him, is what he's going to say. Twice David has heard the words of others, calling him into action that is contrary to God's word. And once again, David chooses truth. Look at verse 9. David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Here it is again. He says, My conscience can't do this. I can't kill the one that God still has on the throne. And then I love this, verse 10. He said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he'll go down into battle and perish. He says, God chooses when he goes. Either God will miraculously strike him down, he will die of natural causes or he'll die in battle, but it's God's business how that happens and when it happens. And then verse 11, once again, he's going to take something symbolic 
of Saul's. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. Now what is significant about taking the spear? Well, it's a sign of his kingly authority. And then we also know, what did Saul use to try to kill David on three separate occasions? David's going, I'm taking this thing away from him, right? We cannot trust him with this spear. And there's a symbol here, a symbol, your attempts to kill me are going to be taken from you, as is your authority and your crown. Ultimately, God is in control of the situation. And then look at what happens in verse 12. David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake. Why? For they were all asleep. And why? Why did they sleep through all the ruckus and steer, spear sw- uh, swiping? Because of a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. God puts them in this deep sleep. Again, he's placed Saul divinely into David's hands, but to do what? That's the question. And again, after Saul wakes up, we fast forward a few verses, he he hears that David's come, sees that his spear is gone, and we're going to hear some more empty words from Saul. Saul said, I've sinned, return my son David, for I will do you no more harm, because uh, will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Now, if you're David... Do you believe these words? We've seen this thing play out time after time after time. And David says, you're not the judge. You're not the one that I'm ultimately worried about. He finishes it up by David says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today. And I would not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so my life, may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. He goes, I'm trusting my God, not your words, Saul. So what do we do with this text? It's interesting to note here, we are, we are seeing double in this text, right? Like these creepy little twins. Now, I married a twin, and I know how confusing it can be to see double, right? Uh, and what we see in chapters 24 and 26, and, and you see it in your notes, uh, if you're following along in your bulletin, that the village church kind of outlines all the parable, parallels between 24 and 26, and it's, it's pretty remarkable. But Jen Wilkin asks, well, why, why, would you, why would you say the story twice? Like, why don't you save some room on the scroll and just put one of these in there if they're so redundant? But her suggestion is that God obviously wants to underline something here. And what do we see in this story? We see twice David's innocence, and we see twice Saul's guilt. And what's being proven here is that Saul is not going to change. That he doesn't appear to be sorry for his actions, and he walks in the same sin over and over and over again, which must be, if it's in there twice, must be a lesson that we need to learn today. So, so two, two lessons for us this morning. Number one, we need to be encouraged by David's faith. Be encouraged by David's faith. Now, in junior high, I was faced with this choice. I, I could listen to the evil words of my buddies, take matters into my own hands, and give my little brother a wedgie. Or I could listen to the true words of my parents and wait for them to get home and deal with things in their way and their timing. Now, I chose poorly and suffered the consequences with the red tush to prove it. In the wilderness, David is also faced with a choice. 
And in that cave, he could listen to the evil words of his buddies, take matters into his own hands, and kill Saul, or listen to the true words of his God, who says, I'll deal with Saul in my way and my timing. Twice he hears the words of temptation. Now, wouldn't it have been easy for Saul to justify, or David to justify killing Saul here? He, God puts him right at his disposal. First at a PP break, and, and then the next time he puts him in this like hyperextended nap. Here he's right there, and Saul's been trying to take him out for years. Here's the time to take him out and take the throne that God had already said that he'd have. But what we see with David here is he does not walk by sight according to what seems like a really good opportunity according to his circumstances, but he walks by faith in God's word. What does David know? David knows clearly in the law, thou shalt not murder. This would clearly be, this would go against God's heart. To kill anybody, let alone the king that he's called to honor. This is not God's way. And this is what Jen Wilkin has to say, and I love the way she words this. The end that God ordains must be achieved by the means that God approves. You camp on that for a while. The, the, the end that God ordains, his purposes, must be achieved by the means that God approves. The, the way that something gets accomplished is just as important as the purpose, where we're going with it itself. He says, she says it this way, his sovereign will never contradicts his revealed will. His sovereign will never contradicts his real will. What in the world does that mean? It means he'll never tell you to do something that contradicts his truth, or what we can read clearly revealed to us in the Bible. He will never tell you to do something that contradicts who he is and how he's revealed himself in his word. So yeah, it's, it's up, it, it is Saul's, it will be, Saul's crown will be taken from him. He will be removed as king, but it's up to God, not David or anybody else, as to the where, when, and how. And David here, unlike junior high Justin, and unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, and unlike Saul himself, resists temptation and chooses God's wisdom, which points us forward to the true David. Because you flip over to the other testament, and you find the offspring of David, Jesus himself in the wilderness, just like David was, hearing the tempting words from a liar, just like David did. And he's got a choice to make. You remember this, this scene in, in verse 9. It says, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And here's what Satan gives to him. He says, All these I'll give to you if you will fall down and worship me because i'll give you the kingdom if you bow down to me now we know according to prophecy and jesus of course would know this that the kingdom is his he's going to be the king of israel that will reign forever and ever but what satan says is i got a shortcut for you i got a way in which you don't have to go the route of the cross where you don't have to suffer where you don't have to bleed and die in agony if you'll just bow before me i'll give it to you right now and David's faced with the same choice here. You could take the crown, or you can kill Saul and take your kingdom right here and right now, or you can continue to run, continue to be banished, continue to go through the wilderness, and wait and see if God will ever come through on his promise. Both Davids faced to do it their way or God's way, or as, as Paul said in our, our preaching team meeting, we can do what's expedient or obedient. David responds by saying, God has said. 
He says, the Lord's anointed. If, if God has Saul on the throne right now, who am I to take him out in my way and my timing? And Jesus is going to say the exact same thing to Satan. It, look, it, God has said. Look at his response. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Why? For it is written. Here's the heart of my father. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. How does David know, that, or Jesus know, that this is not God's will for him? He says, there's one that I bow the knee to. There is one I give my heart to. There is one I will depend on and serve and worship, and that is God the Father, not you, Satan. His revealed will shows that this could not be God's sovereign will in Jesus' life, and he chooses God's way. God's truth will prevent us from descending into lies and error and sin and destruction. So what about you? Where are you at this morning? Each of us are facing these kind of situations every single day. Our way, God's way. Our timing, God's timing. Our will, God's will. We're back at the Garden of Eden. And are you in a situation where it would be easy to just justify your actions? Because listen, we can do a lot of damage with Scripture. We can twist it and turn it, just like Satan in the garden, just like David's men whispering to his ears in the cave. Did God really say that? Didn't God say... I mean, maybe there's somebody who's wronged you in your life, and man, it would feel good to get even. And we could even take, oh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? Doesn't scripture say something about that? Maybe trying to get your way, get ahead at work or wherever you're at, you're clearly contradicting his revealed will. And the way you're going about it is not loving. It's demeaning toward other people or lying, cheating, involved. You know clearly that's not God's will for you. And there can be harder situations where the answer is not clear. But the question is not what's most convenient and self-serving, but what is his will? And I was talking about this. This touches on sort of an awkward point, but if we can't be where we are, then what's the point of this truth? We know we're in a candidating period. I always like, I always say that the, the candidating pastor thing sort of like dating. It's awkward, and boy, am I glad to be done with that period of my life. And so there's this, there's this moment where we go, okay, God, we don't know where this is all going. Now, we know what we want to happen. We know, I know what my will is. I know what my timing would be. And we've been looking for a pastor for over two years. We need help. Our church is bursting at the seams. A lot of babies everywhere. I know Ross's heart. I know, I know that they, they'd love to, he, his, and we heard him, he said, they're here to do ministry at the Kenai Peninsula. That's where their heart is. We want to love people, make disciples. I know he's got a little baby that he wants to put, put food into his belly. But, but the question isn't what the Shoals want. The question isn't what does Peninsula Grace want. It's what's God's will. And that's why we've got to lean in these next couple of weeks into prayer and his word and wisdom of, of, of what's best going forward, his timing, his way. We know, the, we know the truth. We know God will provide. But we can't take the situation into our own, our own hands. Now, I'm not suggesting any of us stab Ross with a spear. The analogies always break down, so don't... You're safe, brother. Be, be encouraged by David's faith, but then also we need to be warned by Saul's unrepentance. The word repent means to turn back or to change. And there are two different kinds of sorrow that Paul tells us about in 2 Corinthians. Read it again in the ESV. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This isn't a game we're playing. This isn't a joke. This is life, and this is death. And he says a life without repentance, a life where there's no change, where there's no fruit, 
where people continue to move forward in their sin. He says that ultimately leads to death. But there is a kind of repentance, there is a kind of change that leads to us being saved from our sin, being saved from our death. David might be the one on the run in the wilderness here, but it's Saul is the one that has God against him. David, unlike Jesus, does not always make the right choice. You actually see in chapter 25, between these two choices in the caves, David was going to make the wrong decision until God intervened. And then we're going to clearly see in a couple messages the very wrong choice he makes with Bathsheba. David is not perfect. The difference between, as you said, David and Saul is not that David's the good guy, Saul's the bad guy. David always does right, Saul always does good. The difference between them is that what we see in David is a consistency to repent when he is exposed to his sin as he walks with his God. Where have you received the word of the Lord? You've been convicted in an area that you know what's the right thing to do. It's not, it's not unclear to you, but you've turned your heart against it. Saul clearly heard from God and turned away from it. Don't do the same. It leads to death. But let me hear, me, hear me on this. Repentance, what we're called here, this is not external. This is not us doing this by works. The, the, repentance doesn't mean, God, I'm going to try harder next time. God, I promise you I'll stop. Or just sitting in our guilt and our shame, and if I feel bad enough about it, that God will be like, okay, you paid for your sins and you're good. That's not the gospel. The repentance says, I'm wrong. There's nothing I can do to make it right. And I needed someone to come be obedient for me. And I needed someone to die on the cross for my sins. And I needed someone to raise from the dead to give me right life. And Jesus did that for us, amen? He's the one that changes our hearts and gives us the ability to change. It's not outward actions that we try to change. From the inside out, we're going to start to see fruit abiding in Jesus. I want to end with these two prayers from David. There's the first David and the second David. Psalm 54, interestingly enough, the notes here, look at what it says before the psalm even starts. From the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time the Ziphites came and said to Saul, we know where David's hiding. So this is from the caves. He wrote this in this very context of the story that we are reading today. And it says to be accompanied by stringed instruments. So we're just going to walk in obedience in that. And here comes Robbie with his guitar. Uh, verse 1, if you would stand with me. This is how I want to end our time, with these two prayers from these two Davids, and if you pray these words with us, when we find ourselves in the wilderness, we find ourselves at these crossroads where we can choose to try to take matters into our own hands, to do what seems good to us right now, or we can say, God, we're believing that your heart is for us. We believe that your way is better than our ways, and we're going to walk in obedience. So let's make this first prayer from the first David our prayer. Would you pray this with me? Come with great power, O God, and rescue me. Go ahead, join me. Defend me with your might. Listen to my prayer, O God. Pay attention to my plea. For strangers are attacking me. Violent people are trying to kill me. They care nothing for God. But God is my helper. The Lord keeps me alive. May the evil plans of my enemies be turned against them. Do as you promised and put an end to them. I will sacrifice a voluntary offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For you have rescued me from my troubles and helped me to triumph over my enemies. Trusting our God in his way that he will help and rescue. And then the second prayer from the second David we're going to see after that wilderness experience, after he resists temptation from the tempter, he teaches this lesson on the Sermon, the sermon on the Mount. 
And he says, you want to know how to talk to our Father? Pray like this. When you find yourself in the wilderness, these are the words that should ring from our lips. Let's pray this prayer together. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, the souls in our life, in the last one. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.